0: Welcome, everybody. Another edition of No Driving Gloves. We have three people on mics tonight. we got me, obviously, like always, Sean, and we have a special guest this evening, Tom Cotter. For those of you that don't know Tom, he's a TV personality. He's a, I want to say, YouTube personality. He's an author, kind of well-known around the car, cir- car circles, so I'm assuming if you do listen to this show, you know who. Uh, Mr. Cotter is, and uh, Tom, do you want to give us a brief uh, little two-minute biography of you, or I guess at that point it would be autobiography? We'll see auto-biography. where the show ro- <laughs> rolls from there. Sure.
1: Well, uh, you know, if I go to a party, I'm either the most boring guy there, or or the most exciting guy there, depending on if there's car people in the crowd. I've I've never done anything in my life that didn't include cars. I mean, I don't. I've never played golf. I don't fish or hunt. I don't follow any sports. So, you know, if, if I'm at a, if I'm at a party with a bunch of, uh, uh, athletic junkies, well, I ain't the guy, but if you want to talk cars, I can talk all day long. It's all I've ever done. I collect them. I work on them. I race them. I write about them. I now have a a video series. So I, I talk about them and, uh, I get feedback. It's, it's, it's an amazing world. And I've met, I've met the most amazing people through cars, that I'm sure that you know other other folks play golf or tennis or baseball have never had the opportunity. But I mean, just two weeks ago I was with Roger Penske to Amelia Island. You know, he's, he's a billionaire with 67,000 employees, and it's just through cars that that we met and talked, and you know we've we've been friends for almost 40 years. And yet I'm I'm just as excited about some guy down the street building a rat right rod out of a almost worthless Model A Ford. So i'm I'm all over the map so there you go
0: <laughs> I, I think uh, both sean and i can relate to that we're both <laughs> bo- both <Right> at, <laughs> um, both car junkies uh i really don't understand other sports i think I, we were watching uh my fiance and i were watching uh the rookie disney thing is we've got disney plus amongst all of this and uh <clears throat> She they were doing something, you know, the little kid, 12 years old or something goes up to bat. And I said, what do you mean? He's playing for the Cubs. It's National League. They don't have the designated hitter. And she looked at me and said, you know, that (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if you guys know that. But, you know, she was amazed that I knew that much about baseball. It's you know, it's it's cars and uh it's the old i say the Porsche club uses it the Viper club uses it you know the cars bring us uh, cars bring us together the people keep us together and that's you m- seem to meet a lot of great people and we talk about that a lot on on this show is how cars are a, a nice join in that I don't know have you been lucky throughout your life or just put yourself in the right places or are you somebody are you somebody that really you know takes a risk that's another problem uh, my fiance and I have is she doesn't quite necessarily like my entrepreneurial spirit because uh i take I take some risks and it makes her uncomfortable
1: well I, I, I was born into a non car family uh, on Long Island in New York and ice Speedway is kind of the extent of it for me when I was a a kid and I, and unfortunately, I missed the Bridgehampton Trans Am races and Can Am races. But I realized to to make a living in the car business, and and more specifically in the racing business, I probably had to be off Long Island. So that's what moved me, um, 35 years ago from New York to North Carolina to get a job in uh, in a NASCAR-related industry. And you know, yeah, I, I I've taken chances, but I, I, I'm I'm pretty good at. Kind of rolling the dice and, and realizing, yeah, you, know, you know, I would never take a chance to put my family in in hawk or to lose our house. It, it's really, I think, more hard work. Just roll up my sleeves and just do what had to be done to become successful.
0: i was and, say, it, getting into NASCAR 35 years ago, that was just about the right time, <laughs> if, if I remember. Well,
1: it it, <laughs> it, it it happened to be exactly the right time, and and that was, you know, I'd rather be lucky than good because. I was a road racing fan, and I really wanted to get a, a job and have a career in IMSA, uh, sports car racing. I got offered a job. I had been a furniture salesman for five years. My, my thing is I went to school, and then out of school I opened a uh, auto repair shop specializing in Japanese cars, and then went from there to uh, auto parts and then car sales at a, on a showroom floor, uh, and then – I became disenchanted and for five years I worked in Manhattan in the furniture business. Then I said, what am I doing? Like I'm a car guy. What am I doing? selling couches. So I worked hard nights and weekends and got myself known as a writer for sports car publications. And I got offered a job on a NASCAR program. And I told my wife, you know what, man, I want to be in sports car racing. I want to be in IMSA. Maybe if I do a good enough job in NASCAR, I'll be you know well thought of enough to one day get a job in IMSA. Well, you know, in 1982, that was, you know, the the NASCAR, NASCAR was kind of floundering. IMSA was starting to go down. NASCAR was starting to go up. And I got on the escalator at exactly the right moment. And, you know, and rode that until, uh, let's see, from 82 probably for 20 years until uh, I had an opportunity to sell my agency and buy a Cobra and drive off into the sunset. And uh, so, so, you know. Have I been lucky? I don't know, but I've always had this carrot in front of me. And the carrot in front of me that I always had to strive for was I was successful if I could one day own a cobra. And this is something that I said to myself
2: back in the in the 70s. Well, it happened. <laughs> I love I love the goal is had the opportunity to buy a cobra. Not pad the IRA. Not not, no, not, no, pay, no, off, no. not pay off the house. Buy a cobra. I want I want the cobra.
1: Well, you know, it's it's uh, a friend of mine. I put on these Cobra tours every year for, for authentic 289 and 427 Cobras. And, you know, we, every year we, after dinner, we all stand up and give our little spiel about how we got here or whatever. And this guy, a friend of mine in California who owns a bunch of Cobras named Drew Serb, he, he got up to talk about it. And he said, you know, I he said, I sold my first business to buy a Cobra. No, he sold his first Cobra to buy a business. And I got up right after him, and I said, I sold my first business to buy a Cobra. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, you know, ultimately, he got a lot more Cobras than I ever got. But it's okay. You know, like, we're all, we're all kind of type A personalities, and we all set our lives to one day be able to own the car that, as kids, we dreamed of.
0: Yeah, I think it's always nice to have that goal. Um, my dad accidentally started a durable medical equipment company. In the late 70s and really his goal is once he realized that you know he had started a company and this was going to be his career path his goal was to have a mercedes convertible in the day that he could pay cash for one he walked into the mercedes dealership sat down in one and honestly didn't like the driving position and he's never owned one to this day oh, but wow. <laughs> but he had he had the goal and you know that was yeah. the driving force and that's probably a drawback I have I'm not sure if I have a you know, driving force goal. You know, that's why I got into restoration as I figured I wasn't going to be a successful enough attorney uh, to buy all the cars and this would give me the opportunity to drive them. And it's exposed me to a lot. But you, you've always wanted this 289 or this Cobra, we'll say. And, you know, you've been a successful businessman, you sell your business and you go out and you buy this Cobra. And then all of a sudden you decide to drive cross-country? Was this something you g- had planned when you bought the car? Or was it, you know, I've got this car and, you know, I've got, you know, a couple dollars in the bank. Uh, I'm going to take a road trip. And I don't know, was it to drive Route 66 or was it just to drive cross-country or, you know, I know.
1: Well, no. I mean, I, I lived on the East Coast and, and the car was on the West Coast. And, and I oh. you know, I, I, did, I didn't want to make a, a mistake and buy the wrong car. So I did a lot of homework. Found out where all the serial numbers were. Didn't want to buy an air car, which is a car that kind of just, you know, materialized out of somebody's fabrication shop. I wanted to buy a real Cobra that had no stories attached to it. And investigated one that was in Walnut Creek, California, a suburb of San Francisco. Went out there and test drove it for, you know, I just, (laughs) the guy I bought it from had driven it probably less than 400 miles in the several years he owned it. And I drove it almost that many miles in one day. And I came back to his house at the end of the day. I said, okay, I'll take it. He said, well, how are you going to have it shipped home? Or when do you want to have it picked up? I said, well, what I'd like to do, this was in, I think, January or February. I said, I'd like to come back in May and drive it home. He said, you're crazy. (laughs) Well, you know, so I I called a friend, Peter Egan, who at the time was writing for Road and Track magazine. And we just took our time and took nine days to drive across the United States and took all the back roads two-lane highways and went north, went south, always heading east, but not not directly east. It was the trip of a lifetime. And Peter wrote a, an amazing story for Road & Track about it. And if, if any of your uh, listeners want to refer to it, you can just search for the title Cross Country Cobra in Road & Track Magazine's archives. And it's, it's an amazing story that here I am almost 20 years later, and when people, you know, I might meet somebody at a car show or something, and they say, "Is this the car that Peter Egan drove across country?" I said, yeah. "How can people?" I'm wondering myself, how can people remember? I, you know, I have a hard time remembering my zip code, but these people can remember details to a story that was written almost 20 years ago. It's just amazing. So, <laughs> so I, chime my in my go. but I drove two-year-old.
2: it too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, well it didn't matter. But uh, the amazing thing is that here's a two seater car that a million people went along for the ride and like that's that's the definition of a good writer to take that many people along for the ride and it's a ride they remember two decades later just amazing
0: is that what inspired you to become the the kind of full-time writer you are now i mean you know we'll talk about a little bit of the subjects the books and that but is that peter writing that story and the way it and it kind of impacted people because, you know, I've met Peter a couple of times. He was really good friends with our um, one, one of the guys at the museum, uh, Brian Slark. They go way back. And I remember Peter's sure. story from 1983, where he built a Westfield 11, uh, which is a Lotus yep. 11 replica. And that's where I remember Peter. And I remember that story. And that might have really been my first indoctr- indoctrination into the uh, Lotus car world it became a major part of my career and a major part of my life. It's, you know, I think I told you pre-show that's how I ended up in Birmingham is just a, a passion for Lotus. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, no, I, I actually, I, I, I was a writer before that. And even though at the time I had just sold my agency, I had been on the masthead for road and track for, I guess, several years prior to that point, And then a number of years after that point. So I was like their East coast uh-huh. guy for a while, which, to me, it was a fantasy because as a 15-year-old or a 19-year-old, you know, man, one day I want to write for Road and Track or Car and Driver. And and one day, the editor called me in my office and said, you know, we could really use a guy on the East Coast to cover things that we can't do here back in California. We'd have to send a guy across country. which would you be our guys. Oh, my God, this is, this. that was Tom Bryant that called me. Tom Bryant just died a couple weeks ago. But, you know, he that phone call was a, uh it was was a life altering experience That I got the i didn't have to make the phone call or make the pitch they called
2: me oh my goodness that's not normal that's that's awesome
0: that <laughs> very and very awesome uh, and those cross country trips is kind of how I was able to reach out to you how uh you know most recently I believe you did it in a model T that was owned by a friend of mine right. How many of these cross-country trips, these dream trips, I want to say, um, have have you done? Is it just the Cobra and the T, or is it... You know, what? whether No, what it's, are... it's,
1: I've done it a number of times, and, and it's always been in an unusual car. I mean, it's just, you know, my wife and I did it in the 240Z back in uh, the 70s, soon after we were married, like 77, I guess. In a 240Z that I had paid 900 bucks for, had a blown head gasket. I fixed it. We had the car painted, put new seat covers on, and and took off for you know a whole summer of cross country driving. Uh, I drove. I've driven my Woody across the United States a couple of times. Uh, I've driven uh, Route 66 for a book. I drove the Model T for a book. Uh, I drove uh, my truck and trailer out out there to pick up a Lotus once. To bring home. So I've probably made, I'm guessing, a half dozen cross-country trips, and I and I hope I can make more. I mean, there's, it's almost any moment I would love somebody to call me and say, hey, can you drive something out to California for me? Oh, man, would I? Yes. So I'd love to.
0: Oh, that's, that's kind of the way to do it, is use somebody else's car and t- being able to take the time. Every time I travel or go on vacation, I have that hard time of making myself slow down and stop and the trips that I'm a- actually go and there's no real time frame, or I'm not desperate to get from point A to point B. Those seem to be the most memorable trips I've ever had. I still oh, have, yeah, I yeah, has, yeah. still yeah. have yet to do the C to C type type run.
2: I've been very mm-hmm. fortunate to get that, to get to do that a couple times, actually with, with a manufacturer's car basically and, and 16,000 yeah, miles yeah. in three months and just going. And I know that, I came across some, some things on those trips that I'll never forget. And, you know, destinations that you really want to make it back to. Do you have any destinations like that out there that like every time you do a cross-country trip, you have to, you have to go back by there, you have to repeat it? I, I don't, but it's, 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 it's amazing because
1: between all the cross-country trips I've driven, all the uh, Barn Find Hunter YouTube series shows I've done, and my previous life doing corporate ride and drive programs, journalist programs for for Mercedes-Benz and BMW, and doing Cobra tours for buddies for the last 16 years, I kind of know the United States too well. I mean, I'll be driving somewhere, you know, with my wife somewhere, and I'll say, oh, there's a real good custard stand around the corner. She's like, how do you know that?
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you got to stop and check out Hard Eight Barbecue when you're going through Texas. And, yeah, I I get it. Yeah, totally get it. It's,
1: Although, you know, when I when I land in either San Francisco or L.A., I know where the closest In-N-Out Burger is, and bam, I'm right did. there.
2: Of course you do. <laughs> Animal style, man. It's all about double-doubles. Got to have it. Got to have
0: it. Yeah. And here I am. I've never been to an In-N-Out Burger. Sorry, all West Coast fans and listeners out there.
2: Yeah, we can, yeah, we yeah. can remedy that. It's not a problem. I a mean, matter of fact, if we flew out there right now, we basically have a plane to ourselves.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah but, be And it definitely would be an in and out burger.
2: It'd be like owning an A330. <laughs> you know,
0: I, I did a little bit of research and tried to do a little prep for this interview, which says a lot, because a lot of times we just go into them um, all cold and figure out where we're going to go. And I listened to uh, Mark Green and Cars Yaz. I'm a regular listener, and you appeared on, like, episode 214 or something of his show. And I don't know if you've made it back because he's at, I don't know, 1,500 or 1,600. Oh, yeah, a number of times, yeah. (laughs) And that was a 2014 episode. And, you know, I stuck a couple of your books up on our web page, you know, Amazon affiliate links, just in case anybody hears this and wants to... I know pick up one of your books. I know it's not the most profitable way. It's probably better to buy it directly from you, but it's kind of the easiest way to link them. And sure. you were only about I think you only had 10 or 11 books out at that time, but you don't stop writing as a matter of fact even right before the show as we were waiting for Sean to get online and get some stuff solved, you know, you were clattering away <laughs> on your keyboard, I believe writing another book. How many books do you have out there at this time? And I know there's various series, cross country things you found in the barn. Um, you know, something about back alleys or things you, you know, just caught barn finds in Detroit alone. Um, do you know? Do you know even know how many books you've got published? <laughs> I, I think
1: sixteen or seventeen. I've done a couple twice. You know, I had to rewrite them when they come out for new editions. You uh, add to them, add new chapters, or go back and fill in the blanks, or you know make corrections and things like that so you know whether that constitute a whole new writing i'm not sure but probably 16 or 17 so i've done i think the barn find books alone i've done at least 10 which started with my second book my my first book was a book about holman moody was a biography about a, a ford racing team uh back in the mostly in the 60s and and the second book was the cobra in the barn and and i thought i was the only one in the world that enjoyed looking for old cars i mean really it was something i've done since i was 12 years old i'd get this magazine called rod and custom and in the back of rod and custom there was a column regular monthly column called uh vintage tin and it was these california guys go out in the desert and drag home a 32 ford roadster or something and i was always infatuated and being on long island it didn't have that same uh i didn't have that same opportunity but but I still enjoyed looking at people's backyards and looking in the garage doors when you went by on weekends and they were doing the lawn and the garage doors open. And there was a Jaguar. I talked to my publisher. He said, Tom, I think that's your next book. So let's give it a shot. So it was the Cobra in the barn that started. I mean, that, that book still sells it's the best selling book I've ever had. It never stops selling well. And it's a bunch of bite-sized stories uh, about, you know, interesting cars that people have found pictures as found uh, and the stories, and that led to, well, the Cobra in the barn led to the Hemi in the barn and the Vincent in the barn and the Corvette in the barn, the Harley in the barn and 50 Shades of Rust and blah, 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 on and on and And then the barn find road trips. You know, I started stopped doing the books where uh, it was just me sitting on a keyboard in, in my den, interviewing people over the phone. It was uh, now me hitting the road with a couple of buddies and hitting four states for two weeks. Uh, Barn Find Road Trip, Route 66, Barn Find Road Trip, which is driving from Chicago to L.A., looking for old cars along the way. That that was a type of book that I, I've written a number of. But, you know, I really, really enjoy writing biographical-type books. I wrote a book about a drag racer named TV Tommy Ivo, who I admired as a kid. He'd drive these four-engine dragsters. And, I you know, even as, a, like, a 12-year-old. How does a four-inch drag, how do you hook up the drive shafts, the axles? How do you get the power from the engines down the ground? And I was able to ask these questions that have been on my mind my whole life. And then I did a book about a guy named Dean Jeffries, who was the other California customized to George Barris. And I became great friends with with Dean. And so I I like writing biographies because people let you into their lives. They tell you the most intimate parts of their lives and they trust that you're going to do a good job with it and you're going to make them appear to be the people that fans think they are or better. You, they, they trust that you're not going to make them look worse. And I love that the trust involved in doing a biography. So I'm kind of doing a biography now. It's, a, it's going to be a long-term project, several years, but I'm, I'm writing about the history of Porsche racing in in America. And it's, uh, it's, it's a book that's never been written. Porsche – America is the biggest market for Porsche. So racing is uh, a critical marketing tool for selling cars here because, you know, gears hit gear heads like racing and gearheads heads go out and pay money for Porsche. So that's what I'm writing at the moment. I'll probably, you know, I may even write another one between now and the end of this book, because I'm, I'm kind of a neophyte Porsche guy. I, I've owned a couple, but I am not a PCA guy. I'm I'm not a Porsche guy. And, but I love history and I love racing and I love bringing, information to people that they had not known before. So uh, that's why I jumped at this opportunity when the publisher gave me.
2: That is an unbelievably deep rabbit hole that you're, that you're diving down. That's, that's oh, gonna, I, that, I know, that book has the ability to be the size of twice of twice war and peace, basically. Well, yeah. it's, it's a 320 pages, hundred thousand words and lots of pictures. So I that's can't, awesome. that's going to be, I awesome. can't, I can't nosedive
1: down into every little nook and cranny. A friend of mine, who I used to work with, his name is Randy Leffingwell. Has written like 48 books, all mostly car books, and he's writing the, the history of Porsche racing in the world. Oh wow! And he's been write, and He's written several books since, but he started this book in 2009. So he started 11 years ago. He's up to 1980 now, and he's got more than a million words down in the
2: manuscript. He's gonna I mean, need so the that will. will be, he's <laughs> gonna need the will that book, the finishing of that book to, to someone. That's that's like building a cathedral back in fifteen hundred and finishing yeah. it two thousand two. Right, right. And he's been to Stuttgart. He's he'll
1: stay for a month in Stuttgart. He'll stay at an engineer's house or one of their research assistants' house, and he'll just live there and just go through their archives. It's it's just amazing. But you know, yeah, that's incredible. Do I need to write a book that detailed? I, I don't, but I want to give. Americans, or I want to give readers, period, a kind of a a pretty good snapshot of what it took to make Porsche a uh, racing brand in the states. Interestingly, the uh, you know working with uh, the Rebs collection down in Naples and Carl Ludvigsen, who is an amazing writer, has done four dozen books. We've determined that the very first Porsche to turn competitive laps in the United States. Was 1951 a guy named Eduardo Fernandez? Um, actually, he was in, it was Italian originally. He lived in England until the war. After the war, he moved to the states and became a car dealer in Chicago. He drove his 51 Porsche Coupe at Elkhart Lake, four laps, retired, finished 37th. But those were the first competitive laps ever turned in the United States. So (laughs) nobody ever realized that before, so it was kind of cool to realize.
0: I'm hearing the contrast between the two books you alluded alluded to, you know, the worldwide Porsche racing history, and that sounds like it's going to be a a great deep dive for the Porsche aficionado, your PCA guy, because I don't know, as much as I'm into cars, I don't know if I could sit down and read a million words, and if he's only... Oh, and, and, and he's only up to nineteen eighty. Yeah, no, say nineteen eighty, and Porsche really's mid forties, so he's only halfway through <laughs> Porsche. And right. so but you know, by the time he's finished, it would be halfway through. And you're writing hundred thousand words, three hundred and some pages. I guess that's what the publisher dictated. And it's yeah. you know, I think it'll it's gonna be a much better read, something easier to sit down and uh comprehend. You know, I've got a friend, he's a You know, he's written, he's a nine ball player and he's written the blue book of pool cues. And his family owns a gun shop and they're the world's foremost experts on the Luger. And they sat down, or his dad sat down to write about the Luger and was just going to write a, you know, a little history of the Luger. And when they were done, it was like 1,200 or 1,300 pages and came out as a three-volume set and, uh, Jeez. you know, r- really yeah. deep dive. in And it it's self, self-published because of, you know, my friend and, you know, he does all—he handles all his publishing and distribution and things like that. It's just the yeah. nature. It's a side business to the gun business. And you can really dive deep down those holes. And I even have that problem trying to write— Brief articles. When I write articles for the uh, remark, which is the Lotus Club newsletter, or the, the car club newsletters, or anything I write, I get a little bit long-winded. Sometimes I do on the podcast. Mm.
2: Give us a chapter or two on Brumos and <laughs> and some really really good pictures of Brumos, and I'll, I'm I'm happy. It's it could literally well, be you know interesting Brumos in America, and I'll be I, I'm happy. I, re- I read every word of the book
1: Hurley, which was written by Sean. Cridwell, I think his name is, and Sean is right now deep into writing the book on Brumos uh, and and the Brundage family. It's a, really about the Brundage family who moved from New York to Miami, and and the Brundages used to race cars. I think it started off in MGTDs, ultimately in a Porsche, and then they were given the opportunity to move from Miami up to Jacksonville to open a a, a Porsche dealership. and And Brumos is. B R U from Brundage Motors M O S, yep. And so that's where the word Brumos comes from. And you know Brundage invented the Formula V as a, uh, a lesser price alternative to a Formula Junior. It's a, it's an amazing story. So before I started my book, I called Randy. I said, I want to make sure that I am not competing with your book in the same audience. He said, absolutely not. I called Sean. I want to make sure I'm not competing with you. He said, absolutely not. So this will be a book that will you know, include a lot of Randy stuff, only us stuff, a lot of, well, it'll have, uh, probably sidebars on Brumos, which is Sean's doing. I've recently become friends with Todd Holbert, Al Holbert's son, who doesn't live far from me. And actually he's the third generation to be involved in racing. He runs Toyota racing development, the TRD operation here in North Carolina. And he's going to get help me with a lot of the Holbert stuff. I'll, you know, I'm going to talk to Jim Busby and Rick Noop and Dennis Ossie and, and Amelia Island. and met Peter Gregg's son. And I, I've got to hurry up, though, because, the, you know, the earlier generation of guys, the earliest generation are rapidly leaving us or most of them are gone. And and the second generation are, are getting older. So I need to you know jump in and do these interviews before they're not up. There's no opportunity anymore.
2: That's a big story to tell man it's It's really exciting to hear that you' you're, you're going to do that I, I have some background with Porsche and was very fortunate to get to work with uh with Bob Snodgrass for a couple of years actually oh. on progress and, on on a project and just really really dove into what brumos had to offer so i'm I'm excited to get the book I, I really uh, am.
1: I live in Maine in the summer, and I was going to start it this summer because i ha- I go up there and I just ah I just I just sit on a porch and just write here we are locked down with uh, COVID-19 for maybe two months. I don't know. I said, you know what? I'll never have this opportunity again to have this much time just to me. That I won't be interrupted by people knocking at the door or having to go out to do something going to dinner or whatever. And I, so my, my contract, my publisher is not even inked yet. And,
2: but I called them, I said, you know what? I can't lose this opportunity. I'm, I'm diving in right now. Are you, are you, are you banging it out? I mean, is, is it coming? Is yeah. it coming pretty well? That's, that's good to hear. Oh yeah, good to hear. Yeah, I'm working right now. So I put a I put a post on Facebook, you know, because I don't
1: want to have to buy. Randy said, you know, be prepared to buy several thousand dollars worth of books. I put a Facebook note on there. I said, you know what, I'm I'm doing a Porsche book, and this is if you have any books that you will loan me, I'll give them back in three years. And I've got every day UPS deliveries coming to my door with buddies that are sending me nice. books. So uh, yeah, I so I, you know I've got all the rest
2: reference materials and C, CDs and DVDs that that I need. That's awesome. Yeah. That is that's, I can't wait. That's that's my background. My background <laughs> is, is sports car racing and just Porsche in general has always fascinated me. So I
0: I can't wait. Yeah, cool. I want to ask you a question, and again, it goes back to the the Mark Green co- conversation you had, and uh, at the time you had just acquired or recently acquired, I believe, your Cunningham, and I I do have some questions I've said about the Cunningham. What car? Because. You know, you you achieved a point that a lot of us uh, get to, and uh, you know, you said the Cunningham was always a dream car, and you're never going to get one because they only built you know eighteen, twenty three, twenty five, whatever the number is. What yeah. what car do you have that you? I guess what car do you have that kind of most excites you? Whether you know, I don't know if you drive a CTSV daily and that's it, or is it the Cunningham, or is it? You think at the time you were building a uh, high boy. Uh, is it, is it that oh, 289 yeah. Cobra, uh, you know, what, what car do you have or has went through your hands a little, give me a little bit about Tom Cotter and, uh, something that, yeah. you know, you, you've always wanted to be asked and you've never been asked.
1: Well, you know, my interests are so diverse that I can't say I'm a sports car guy. I can't say I'm a hot rodder. I can't say I'm a drag racer. I can't say I'm a road racer. I can't say I'm a classic car guy. Cause I'm, I'm all of the above, you know, if, if you were to ask me, I, and I asked this to a lot of people, you know, people like Jay Leno and, you know, like, if I took away all your cars and gave you the opportunity to take one back, what would it be? So if I asked myself that same question, it would be my Cobra because that's a car that I have dreamed about since fifth grade. And, uh, and, you know, always knew that that was, that was what I aspired someday to own and never, you know, a lot of, a lot of things you aspire to never come true but at least it's it's a guiding light to kind of give you inspiration to keep working hard um so I didn't think I'd actually get a, actually ever get a cobra but wow it happened uh the the car that excites me the most that I own is uh the Cunningham because here's a car that I dreamed of owning and really again never thought I'd own it whereas in the cobra world they made 998 authentic cobras so I had a 1 in 998 chance of owning one of those in the Cunningham world, there were only 36 cars ever made, and of those, only uh, the street cars. There were there were uh, 27, 28, probably 28 or 29 street cars, and certainly, you know, those those were all you know in sitting in millionaire collections somewhere here and there. And son of a gun, I followed up a lead that I never thought was possible, and there was one in Greenville, South Carolina, in a guy's basement, and took a, it took several years to be able to he, he invited me over to look at it but made it clear he wasn't selling it and several years later i wound up owning it and now it is the most amazing car i mean here's a car owned by a guy that it was built in west palm beach florida by a guy that didn't want to be a manufacturer of cars but because of homologation rules at 24 hours of Le Mans, he had to build 25 street cars and mine is the second of those 25 with 331 Chry- chrysler hemi four carburetors Uh, Built in West Palm Beach, Florida, then bodied in Italy. So it's an American hot rod with an Italian body. It's like the best of both worlds. Oh my God! And (laughs) and you know, here's a car that I have taken to the Concours d'Elegance, several of them. You know, and so here's a so here's a rat rod looking car. I bought it and it was black, black, uh, flat black primer. I don't know why it was painted that way. At some point in probably the early '60s, somebody primed it. Well, I just left it that way and I went through it mechanically. But otherwise, you know, the headliners hanging down, the seats are ripped, and so mechanically it's superb. So I've I've taken it to Concourse d'Elegance because it's one of, it's the only one that's not restored. Uh, I have um, taken it to Rat Rod shows. I have um, hill climbed it a couple of times, once at Hershey, once at Mount Equinox. I have vintage road raced it at Lime Rock. Haggerty wants to know if I'm interested in racing it this year on a dirt drag race that they are sponsoring somewhere. I've taken it on tours. It's been written about in magazines and newspapers. Uh, it, I can't imagine a car that you can do as much with as I've done with that car. So I'd sell the Cobra last, but the car that excites me the most is, is the Cunningham. But then again, you know, I've got a 67 Ford country Squire station wagon that I found on one of my road trips. Think about that. A 67 Ford country Squire. It's a 5,000 pound car with dual-facing rear seats, fake wood siding, you know, contact paper and plastic wood. It's got a 428-cubic-inch engine factory, four-speed manual gearbox factory, bucket seats for the factory, and a console. That's from the fact the only one ever made like that. So I'm excited about that car, too. You know, I've got a Mini Cooper, a Morris Minor that I put on two wheels on racing circuits. I've got my Woody Wagon that I bought when I was 15 years old for 300 bucks in 1969. You know, the cars that I aspire to, I have. I've got the cars I love. And that's why it's so hard for me to, to sell cars. I buy cars easily, and I sell cars hard. I, I buy cars, and they become a part of me. They're, they're my friends. And, you know, now I'm at the age where you know I don't need 20 cars anymore. So I'm starting to sell cars often. Like I got to tell you, it's like chopping off my arm. It's hard to do. I uh, So are there, totally are there any cars? Oh, yeah. And so are there cars that I fire to own? No, I, there's not. I don't need to own any more cars. Now, I'm, I'm invited to drive cars, race cars that, and it's such a cool thing to do. I just drove Dan Gurney's 67 Mercury Cougar at Sebring. That is my all-time favorite vintage Trans Am car. You know, 289, two four barrels, you know, almost a completely stock Cougar and I'm, I'm out there racing in a car that my, my hero drove on the same circuit that he drove it on. I said, holy mackerel. I recently drove for a road test for a magazine, Ford GT number 1046, which won Le Mans in 1966. It's the whole, it's the car that won the race that Ford versus Ferrari movie was based on. I drove the car that Chris Amon and uh, Bruce McLaren drove to the win, the black number two, the car. I'm driving down I-77 in Charlotte with you know, moms and SUVs next to me and UPS trucks. And holy crap, I'm driving a car that a guy paid $21 million for. And
2: none of those but, people know, okay, actually saw you either because the car's too low. They they had no, no idea you I'm were I'm only there. 40 inches from the
1: ground. But unfortunately, you know, like, with with the, the the coronavirus now, a lot of the races that I hope to attend have been canceled or postponed later in the year. In Summit Point, West Virginia, there's a great Summit Point Raceway. And a friend of mine, Brian Walsh, whose dad was, was Jerry Walsh, and he was known to racers as Racer Walsh for being the, the guy that sold Pinto parts. And I used to race a Jerry Walsh Pinto. Well, Brian just bought the car and driver Pinto that Bedard and Don Sherman used to race in the uh, showroom stock series back in uh, in the 70s. And Brian said, I just bought the car and driver Pinto. Do you want to drive it? I said, oh, hell yes, do I. Well, that race has been canceled. So I hope that opportunity happens again sometime in the future. So I don't have to own cars. Uh, now it seems like I can, you know, I can drive cars and and love them from a distance.
2: <laughs> you sound like you have a very similar personality to me. It doesn't really matter what the car is, where it is, <laughs> what wheels are driving the car, how much power it has. Just drive the car. That's yep. Am I right yep. in that? Is <laughs> you just want to drive? Oh, I just want to drive. And right now,
1: I look for excuses to drive someplace. Like, and I look for excuses to take secondary roads to get there and find things along the way, or maybe meet people along the way. And I got to say this, I've never even heard of a fraternity like the car community that it seems like we're all friends. Just most of us haven't met yet. And and I'll knock on some crabby guy's door in West Virginia <laughs> to, to ask about the, the backyard full of cars he's got. And if I were driving a new you know black suburban or something they say now get out of here i'm not interested but sitting in his driveway is a 39 ford woody wagon and i'm knocking on his door asking about the rusty hudson in the backyard and suddenly i'm as interesting to him as he is to me you know, and yeah. say come yeah. in have some have some see. you know so i've never met a group of people that within 15 minutes we're friends like we've known each other since high school amazing
0: i said it earlier it's something it's something about the cars i've got a i've got a buddy and i can't figure out whenever he amazingly he's another model t owner this one lives in detroit he felt like or when he goes to a new town the first thing he does when he gets there is drives all the back alleys to see what cars (laughs) are parked behind houses and yeah i guess that's that's something to do i've never brought myself to do it it's things i want to do and I'm beginning to get to an age where I'm going, I've got to do some of this stuff and quit oh, wanting and oh, co- yeah. quit putting it off until tomorrow.
2: All right, John, it's, yeah. it's, we're, we'll just go ahead and invite you, Tom. Let's do a PCH barn find trip, road trip. That that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: now, let me ask uh, you, I, you know, I, I, I've given off clubs. I, I've given up on clubs. I, I, you know, the problem is I you're in a club and then I wound up running it and then it winds up running me. And so, I you know, I, I don't join clubs anymore <laughs> I,
0: I, that's why i have the podcast i became president of so many different car clubs and it just it just yeah. kind of burns you out because now as much as we've said nice about car people there's some people in car clubs that you just don't want to have to deal with and their ideas and you know your differences of yeah. opinion but that that's that's car clubs that's I believe in this, you know, I'm exactly like you. I don't care what you drive as long as it's a car I show interest. And I've commented a couple times today that, you know, working at the Barber Museum and, you know, at the time we had 58 Lotus. And I think they're a little over 60 now when people would ask me what my favorite car there was to drive. And I'm a Lotus guy and I absolutely love Lotus. But we got this donation in probably 2010, 2011 of a 50 Plymouth uh deluxe you know four door coupe it's or a or four four door sedan uh, and, and it's a home restoration. The guy did it himself, it was a family car, his dad owned it, he remembered traveling in it, his brother got it, he got it, and that three on a tree in line six that was the car I had the most pleasure driving, having fun with I mean the lotus are great, but for some reason, I like the fifty Plymouth more than just about anything we had there. <laughs> I have a question you know, about... You Ch-
1: about Lotus? I, 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 I drove a road test for a road test. I, I was out in Colorado Springs, and uh, you now Colorado, uh, in Denver, and drove a Lotus Elan, uh, a guy named William Taylor, who's a, a well-known author for, of Lotus Books. He invited me to take his car out for a day. And I had never driven a Lotus, and it's hard for me to get in one because of my lanky legs. But I got out of that road test, and in that story, I said that this is the best sports car i have ever driven and i've got two now in my garage uh i want to restore both of them but I, I i i i've decided to do one at a time i know where you're at i i love uh i love lotuses as well and uh one of these days i'll have mine on the road but i'm in the middle of restoration and i love it it's the simplest car it's so simple you know the body comes off the frame the frame weighs 40 pounds the body weighs 140 pounds it's like
2: this can't be real it's like a toy it's wonderful. I don't fit in them at all.
0: <laughs> that's that's why I got into restoring, uh, I think, little sports cars and that. I'm a little guy. I'm 5'7". I'm not bulky by any means. And I just like the, the lightness. And, you know, I could pick up the engine block of, a, you know, an MG or a Lotus or something. I, I can't pick up a 302 or a 350 or... Yep. I guess... Is that the road and track vibe there too? Because Peter Egan, you know, for years did the restoration to his Elan. and if I remember right, his maiden voyage was driving from Michigan down to Barber's for a Lotus Owners Gathering event back in oh nine or ten or something and just... Yeah, and
1: he, he uh he he sold it soon thereafter because he was so disappointed in it. But uh he he bought that car based on I uh, wrote a story in one of my barn find books that this guy in New Jersey had a, a barn find final lawn and it was a book and Peter called me up and said, can you give me the phone number of that guy? I'd like to buy it. And he wanted to buy in that car. Well, Peter bailed out too soon. I think, you know, he's got patience, uh, but he felt the car let him down. He said, never have I had a car that was, it was so mean to me. You know, I, I treated it so well and it was so mean to be back. I, I think if he had just hung on a little bit more because I've talked to the guy who, owns it now. It bought it from Peter. And a couple of bugs worked out, and he said, it's an amazing car.
0: Part of the game is spending a a little bit of time, and as I've said, you know, restored a Cunningham there, and that's where we got it to, is to that point where it's restored, and then you've got to sort out all the little bugs and stuff over the next year. I've asked this question to many, many people, and I'm going to ask you because of your Cunningham involvement and of seen a few of them. When I did this restoration there, there was only one other Cunningham being restored. And I believe that was by like RPM Motorsports up in Connecticut or something. And I got some information and I drove over to, uh, you know, Tennessee and sat down with one of the members of the Cunningham family and looked at the car he had in his garage and that. And on the car that I did, I think it was chassis 5210, it has a little gauge on it. And to this day, 15, 20 years later, I have no clue what it does or where I was supposed to connect it. And I know it cost the the car owner some points at some concours and that. But do you have a f- oh. fuel dash oil pressure gauge on your car? I, ha- you know, This car had an oil pressure gauge. It had a fuel pressure gauge. And it had an amp meter and a fuel yes. gauge. But it had a fuel oil pressure gauge. And to, for the life of me and to literally hundreds of people I've asked, nobody has a clue where that's supposed to go.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, what? if the car was closer... It's, on my, it's in a warehouse that's about 20 miles from here, but if it was close, I'd run out there right now and look at it. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's got a lot of gauges, I'll tell you that, and they're beautiful. They're, they were uh, U.S. gauges that the Cunningham team uh, shipped over to Vignali when the car was bodied, and, and Vignali took American gauges and built them into uh, Italian surroundings and, and made these very Ferrari-ish-looking, Gauge clusters are just beautiful. But, you know, if you have to have them rebuilt, it's Ford stuff. It's it's just amazing. It's really, really pretty cool.
0: We obviously did that with that car. And it, like I said, that's just a puzzling piece. It's the unknown. of uh, All yeah, the yeah, research yeah. I do and everything that I do, um, I just can't figure out where that piece is supposed to go.
1: So I told you before that uh, there were 36 Cunningham's built in total. Uh, a 2 r C2R was destroyed at Pebble Beach in the 50s. Uh, so 35 remain, and uh, I, I put together a class at the, at the Greenwich Concourse two years ago where of the 35 Cunninghams on Earth, 33 were on the field. And the two that didn't show up, one being a Miles Collier car, which he said because the paint's peeling off, it, it doesn't want to leave the building. And another uh, had a real good excuse in Washington, D.C., we had 33 Cunninghams in numerical order by production, by serial number, spanning the the, the the sewer of the Long Island Sound on this beautiful lawn. And you could go from car to car to car and look at changes that were made. And, oh, look, at they used Chrysler radio on this one. They used a Ford radio on this one. It was just an amazing scene. And, you know, the Revs collection, Miles Collier brought his race cars out there. Uh, Fred C. Muriel brought the, Le- the Lamar car that finished third at the C4R. Uh, it was just an amazing grouping of cars, just amazing. Yeah,
0: should... And then we had
1: some Briggs Cunningham cars that were, you know, that he raced that he didn't build, like you know, the lightweight Jaguar E-type coupe and cars like that. Uh, 904 Porsche. So These were Cunningham cars painted in Cunningham colors, white with blue stripes he didn't build them and so what a collection it'll never happen again it was yeah. just amazing
0: yeah i wanted to go to that so bad but i can't remember i had something come up last minute and it prevented me because i i knew very little about the cunningham before t- undertaking this project and afterwards i've just kind of i don't say diehard followed him but i've definitely ca- casually followed him and you know tried <clears throat> to pay attention and s- see where things are going and what's what's going on and I just, you know, kind of like the Briggs story, and you know, he tried.
1: <laughs> he won. He won. He won Elkhart Lake. He won Sebring. He won Watkins Glen. Tons of other races in the states, and he almost won Le Mans. And he finished third twice. That ain't bad for for a little operation that operated out of like a five car garage in in West Palm Beach. For ain't bad.
0: I believe isn't that how uh, Shelby started too? Just a couple of guys in a garage, a couple of madmen, and. Uh... Of course, he yeah. had a yeah. little bit of racing history there, too, and Cunningham had a little bit more money behind him than Shelby did. But
2: Hearing uh, he'll talk about the Cunningham, I, I can't help but make a correlation, and John may kick me completely off the podcast for this. I don't know. Now suddenly the the, uh, the Maserati Ghibli has more weight to it in my mind. Just Italian <laughs> with Chrysler guts, basically. It sort of ties yep. in. Yep. It, it, it definitely ties in, and it makes me wonder because I mean, they're i don't know globally if the Ghibli's doing well, but it's not doing really well here, and there's not going to be many of those cars out there. So, is the Ghibli mm. the, the the future collector Cunningham possibly?
0: I don't know. I don't know. If Italian with Detroit ties. I I would venture. Well, I, I'd venture to say no, but
2: <laughs> that's why I, I mean, John's going to yeah. kick me off right after this. John's going to basically dress me down and. <laughs> and, and tell me never to come back just for, for bringing that up. Well, but but I know, mean, there is you know, a tie in. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there,
1: I, I personally love, in fact, the Studebaker Museum did a show a couple of years ago. My Cunningham was invited there and it was, uh, you know, hybrids. It was American hybrids. And so it, it was the Cunningham it was Cobra. It was a sunbeam tiger. It was a, Iso Grifo, it was a, Fossil Vega, it was, you know, it it was just a really cool, all these cars showed one thing, an American power plant, but everything else was, you know, foreign. So just an amazing show. Very cool.
0: That's kind of interesting how the, um, I want to say, American power plants have got into or kept a lot of these things alive or were able to create. I mean, it's kind of, we joke, I guess, about ls motors and everything's ls powered now and that's the easy swap and if you're going to build something put an ls in it and it's kind of a, i think maybe sports car racing revolved a little bit around it it was easy to drop a, a ford or a chevy motor into anything uh, i've got a acquaintance and maybe you know him um and i'm forgetting his name but he wrote uh bowtie ferraris and uh, blue oval ferraris oh, i have i have that yeah, yep, I got both of them. Uh, Randy,
1: somebody yeah. I believe he, is the passed, author. He's passed away now. Oh, I didn't. He's I wasn't aw- wasn't aware of that. He yeah. uh,
0: knew knew him. He came out to a couple of events and liked his books. And he you know he he just because of these American power plants, a lot of those Ferraris still exist today. Right. Exactly. Yep.
2: For another one of those
1: shows. So, you know, I'm a I'm a hot rodder. I'm a hot rodder at heart, so oh. you know, popping a, an American motor in a foreign car doesn't hurt my feelings at all.
0: <laughs> I so wish we had Will here; he could uh, he he owns a place called Big Oak Garage, and uh, that's what he does is build hot rods. He's the the fourth wheel of this podcast, but he's in. He's still, I think he's got three SEMA debuts this year. Provided SEMA actually happens, he might get an extra twelve months on those. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's you know, and again, hot rods provide I've had some, you know, engine swap vehicles in the over the years and come up with some creative things and go back to uh kind of ask what question haven't we asked you that you've always what's a little Tom Cotter, you know, behind the scenes that you want to talk about and nobody ever talks to you enough about. You know, we've dwelled on your books and your you know, your Cunningham and your Cobra and there's got to be something in there. You know, you've got a couple of cars from your youth, which many of us would love to have, but I never had the room, or I traded cars so often when I was younger. It, it just would have never, it wouldn't have been feasible.
1: Well, I've actually had three cars. I've, I've got a car I bought when I was 15, which is a 39 Ford Woody. I've got a, a 53 Ford two-door wagon uh, that I bought when I was 18. It was The guy wanted 100 bucks, and I didn't have a 100 so I talked him down to 85 and, and I still have that car. And I have uh, a car that I bought 40 years ago this this year, 1980, uh, a 1960 Volkswagen convertible, 36 horsepower. And and I, I built this car kind of as if it was 1950s, and uh, I wanted a Porsche Speedster but, but couldn't afford it. So uh, this 60 Volkswagen convertible has uh, Speedster wheels on it it has Motolita wooden steering wheel. It has uh, speedster grills on the uh, headlights. Uh, the 36 horsepower is still original, but I put a Judson supercharger on it, and I have a Barth exhaust uh, back. You know, an early set of a exhaust. So that I've had that in my garage for 40 years. You know, what can you ask, Tom Cotter? I've always been kind of true to my passion. In that, when, when I was in on Long Island. And I wanted to get a job so bad in the car industry somehow, some way, especially the racing business. And nobody had the time for me. I'd, I'd see people at a race or at a show, or at a convention and whatever. And I was, um, I was a student or I, I was repairing, you know, Dodsons, uh, or, or selling furniture. How do I get where you are? What, what is it that you did that maybe I can, you know, just give me an idea. Uh, I don't have time for that. It, there's no opportunities. Forget it. You know, and <clears throat> I made it my point to, to promise myself that if I ever had some, if I ever actually made it and had an opportunity to give back, I would. And, and so therefore I've, I've spent really my whole professional career When somebody says, you know, can I, can I go to lunch with you? Or can, you know, can I have a phone call with you? Or would you, could you look at my resume or give me an op- opinion on something I want to do? I always find time to do it because I said, you know, there was nobody that gave me that time of day when I was in my early twenties or whatever, that I don't want that a person to go through that same frustration. And maybe the car business lose that person forever. Maybe they wound up going into some other career because the car business let them down. And so, you know, even though I've been out of, uh, that kind of world, the agency world for almost 20 years, still, when, uh, I, I've recently taught at a college uh, about motorsport marketing and PR. And, you know, I, I I found it so rewarding to talk to students and give them career advice. Uh, you know, it, it, can I stay after class and ask some questions or whatever? And and so to me, this is the point in my life where I, I'm looking forward to giving back. And, uh, you know, it's not all about acquisition uh, and selfish motives. It's about seeing that the future of the car hobby and the car industry moves forward. And if I can help it, I will. I'm, I'm involved with a, a great college out in Kansas called McPherson college, which offers a four year bachelor's degree in automotive restoration. And I absolutely love going out there. I love meeting the students. I love helping to advise and give course correct uh, directions and, and, and uh, corrections and sitting in classes and, going out doing fundraising events i absolutely love it and and when those students you know graduate with a bachelor's degree they go to work for paul russell or they go to work for ralph or they go to work for the pearson collection or the revs museum it's just amazing where these these young people go so that's the future of our hobby and everything i can help them achieve i i jump at
0: i don't know if uh, you were aware, but I'm a graduate of McPherson, and uh, that's where Will, the other co-host that I was talking about, we both were uh, graduates of McPherson and spent some time out there and, you know, loved the program went underwent a huge change while we were there, and a lot of that was bringing on the advisory board, which I know you're part of now, and, uh, that oh, yeah. the program has grown so much it would it almost be fun to go back through it because i i think the opportunities i mean it opened up a lot of opportunities for me um you know i did the first internship with uh, craig jackson out of that had to develop the whole wow. intern program and drove out and, and, and you lived
1: through it huh? <laughs> you, you lived through the internship
0: with craig yeah. and, and that was just a three or four day thing for his auction and uh drew was his uh right hand man at the time it was the year before Russo became a company and you know I think like I think I've told the story I think I pulled into um, Scottsdale at like two in the morning and I called Drew and he he, he said call me whenever you get in no matter what time and I called him at two in the morning and he said can you come in I said I just got off the road after 17 hours I can't say can I sleep he said yeah be here at six (laughs) and it, it was the four of the hardest days I've ever worked in my life but for the most exciting. Uh, I learned so much and, you know, and Barrett Jackson at the time was probably a third of the size of what it is now. So uh, I, I will, and I talk a lot about that program and we stand behind it wholeheartedly. I mean, it, it can't, you know, it opens doors, but kind of, as you said before, just don't go there and expect when you graduate the door to be open. You have to work your time there and, impress these people that invest their time into making sure the program's good Yep. Yep. i've got one last thing and i'm going to let you go just because you said it and this has been a passion and i've been looking for probably 20 or 25 years uh, looking hemmings ebay and i don't say i do it all the time but it's always a casual look and
1: whatever it is, I'll find it, whatever it is, I'll find it for you. Well, the
0: problem problem is you have it. (laughs) You, my dad, when he was a teenager, his first car was a 60 Volkswagen convertible. And I I have looked for years, uh, you know, he kind of did a restoration to it. And, uh, uh, his dad and his uncle worked for international harvester. One was an accounts payable, receivable, and one was on the line. And somehow they got a, Couple gallons of International Harvester red paint and painted it International Harvester red in that, and he drove it until he got broadsided at a intersection and he said we became a tilt a whirl. But I've kind of always tried to pay attention to see if I could find a '60 Volkswagen convertible for sale, and I never. I find '59s, I find '61s, I find '63s, (laughs) and here we are in this conversation, and I just i love sure. the I love the irony and how small the world can become. you know, I don't expect to make an offer on your car and I don't or anything. I just wanted to say it's it's going to be something, and I'll mention to my dad and he'll probably get a kick out of it and uh if you can, email me a picture of your car and i'd lo- love to see how it went you know Porsche style, but that was the yeah, last thing cool. last thing I wanted to do. we told you we would bother you for about an hour today, and that's a you know. We've recorded for an hour three, and I know you were on the phone for fifteen minutes prior to that. So,
1: well, you know what? It's uh, it's, it's fun, and you know, if you want to go for another hour, I'll, I'm i prepared to do that too. So, uh, I can. You, know, you haven't gotten all all of me, but you know, if you want to do some other time, give me a shout. <laughs>
0: Game
2: on! Let's marathon it. We're
1: here till midnight.
0: <laughs> now, yeah, I'll...
1: marathon. I'm a marathon runner, by the way, and i uh, the Boston Marathon uh, was to be held um, in, in a month that's been postponed now until September so it gives me 6 more months to, to practice but I'm a marathoner that's the only thing I do besides cars marathons
0: <laughs> and there's that little thing that we've been looking the whole episode for that little tom cotter piece and now I can now I have something to go back to my fiance because she took up running last year and she's not doing marathons yet but I think she was she's registered for a half marathon this year I don't know if when or well, whatever. The, the
1: half marathon is a per, is the perfect the half is the perfect length race because just as you get exhausted, it's over. You know, when you do a marathon, you get to that halfway point and, sucker, you ain't seen nothing yet. He,
0: <laughs> I can believe that. And she has a MS, too, so she adds another degree of difficulty to Ooh. it. But she, I'm I'm amazed and I'm impressed with her in doing that. And I, you know, I just say, you know, 13 miles, 25 miles. That's why I have a car. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, Sean, I saw you rubbing your hands together there. Are you – do you have another question for Tom? I don't
2: have another question. Y'all just started talking about air-cooled Volkswagens, and now I'm going to have to go on the Samba and look at Type 2s. And uh, (laughs) it's costing me money. I've had a 62 and a 67 Type 2, and I really want another one. Unfortunately, they're uh, they're in rarefied air these days. (laughs) (laughs) These things are crazy expensive these days. You know, I had a 61 uh, crew cab,
1: rust free, amazing, amazing car. And I had it for a few years and, you know, okay, I sold it to a guy who still owns it today. But the problem is he took my rust free car and parked in his backyard and now it's sunk down to the chassis and it is complete rot box. And he says, if you want to buy it back, you can buy it. I said, you know, I couldn't do that. Like it, when I gave it to you, it's like a, you are know, giving putting a child up for adoption, and you've abused this child. Right? Holy crap! Yeah. So sad. A rust-free car,
2: and now it's just like—I mean, you can restore it, but man, you'd have your work cut out for you. Yeah, Jeez. Just grab a Busboys catalog yeah. and go to town, man. And
0: That's, depending how yeah. long ago you sold it, he's probably asking about the same price. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing just the. I was oh, asking
2: a lot more. He's asking a lot more actually. Yeah, yeah. It's in basket case. I I actually posted a, a picture not too long ago that was, it was of a type two, but it it was decayed to the level of like a first generation Lancia. It was like there was nothing left of it. It was just a pile of of rust. And it was like mm, yeah. asking eighty seven thousand dollars. No low ballers. I know what I have.
0: Uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. It's just Damn. like they
2: bring crazy money. Like, would you consider this is this is a question that I'll ask? Because I'm, I'm I love air cooled Volkswagens. Would you consider if anybody ever came out with a kit version of a Type Two that was actually nice, something along the lines <laughs> of like a Kirkham Cobra? Would you consider something like that? Or or are you more of the well? At this stage of my it's this stage of my life, no, no. You know,
1: I am intrigued with uh, continuation cars that are kind of factory authorized, like like the the Caterham Sevens, and yeah. You know, there's an intriguing part of that, but you know, would I build one now? What I would maybe do is is uh, you know, I built a Myers Manx a number of years ago. I'd build another one of those. That was easy and fun, and it was rewarding and Ah, oh,
2: it was great. I've always wanted to build a Manx or some form of rail VW for autocross.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: like, the problem is, is there's no weight
1: in the front, and they wind up understeering like crazy.
2: Weight it in the front, oh, put, some arrow, put some arrow. Put some up there. You can put all the tire in the yeah. world on it, right? There's no fender, so you literally you have can put
1: like cement Yeah, cement
2: you put three thirty fives on each corner of it. Big old splitter in the front. Get the thing you set it up like a a prepared car where you've got a giant arrow all around on it. It's, and you could build it for like $3 and, and five weeks. Right, right. It just sounds like fun.
0: I think we're going to not, not to be rude, but it's, uh, you're East coast. So you're probably about dinner time and, um, we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and wrap up and, uh, we might invite you back. I'm planning on having uh, Nathan on, and we m- might be a good time to have you back and uh, let you oh, two yeah. chat a little bit about that uh, cross-country jaunt and, you know, the Model T. You know, that's something I really want to yeah. hear in depth, and I think that could be be an interesting story. Uh, I guess I better order the book yep. and read the book and get a little bit of that in background, but... I really want to thank you for taking the time and on such short notice to do this and, and and here we are knocking on your door and this time you never thought you'd get interrupted and again, you, know, you said you, you seem to provide time when people ask and we definitely thank you. I'm sorry um, Derek wasn't with us today. He really wanted to be and you know chat a little bit. Probably thank you for some of the stuff you've helped him out with over the years and um, if I yeah, would have no problem, John, I, uh,
2: John and Sean has been a blast, man. Very mm-hmm. much looking forward to the Porsche book, and and like John said, thanks for your time. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: Thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye.